What, what causes the price of gold to go up? People buying it. Enough people buy it, the price goes up. If a lot of people are selling it and there aren't that many people buying it, the price goes down. So how would it keep as a hedge against inflation? Well, people would be having to sell their dollars to buy gold consistently at the same speed that the dollar increases with inflation. That's weird. Nobody does that. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. We are both bald. We are both bearded. We enjoy horrible puns. Those are the first disclosures. Next disclosure is this program is called The Personal Wealth Coach. Wait, I already told you that, didn't I? Well, that's a disclosure. Yeah. Well, it's also the name of the firm that employs the two bald guys, uh, or at least unemploys them, something like that. Um, that is not coincidental. The SEC-registered firm is The Personal Wealth Coach. The radio program is performed by the people that registered the firm. Well, that's really, really amazing. Um, Why do I tell you all of that? Because, just as a side note, the program predates the firm by quite a long time. Um, I'm telling you that because we're required to. At the firm, we're registered to give fiduciary advice, and we can't do that on the radio. But we're still required to tell you who we are and who regulates us, because if we say something really stupid, well, that's most of what we say. If we say something really illegal, you should be able to contact them and tell them who we are and why we said these horrible things on the air. Uh, so they have not given us any form of attaboy, girl, thumbs up, pat on the head, uh, any of that stuff by registering with them. It is simply the authority under which we fall. <sighs> we don't pay for this radio program. It's not a paid commercial program. Um, but we also can't give advice on it. So we're not paying for it and we can't give it. What is this thing? This is some sort of, well, it's educational and we're not being fiduciaries to any of the listening audience right now. We're being educators. Uh, So we're trying to teach you how to make good decisions. We don't know you all. Maybe we do. Maybe there's only a couple of you. Maybe there's none of you out there. If that's the case, then we could be giving advice on the air all the time, but it'd be to nobody. And then it wouldn't be private. So nobody might get upset because it would be publicly to all the people Has that anybody ever told listening. you you're uh, Yes, I have been told that a few times. I'm an economist. That's like, uh, it's a redundant statement to say that we're weird. It's just, it's like politicians and, and ethics or honesty. They are oxymorons, but you know. I think you're more of an economist. Yes. Um, so, so we're eco-warriors. Just And when we say we fight for green, we're not talking about that eco. It's oh, the other eco, the econ. I was talking about, I was talking about Kahneman. You're an economist. Ah, yes, I get that. I get that. Kahneman's a Nobel Prize winning economist, and it just shows that we're still weird because we're making puns with names that nobody else knows about. So we told you we prefer horrible puns to good ones. That was that requires us to disclose it multiple times. You've got a disclosure to give as well. Hey, we're dads. We're dads. We are, and therefore, by definition, every joke we give is a dad joke. Yeah. It's just, well, it's right there. I have my favorite disclosure and disclaimer. Yes. Which is it, which is 
that the information we present on this educational radio program or internet program, as the case may be, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Very well done, sir. If you're looking, by the way, it was an interesting article that came out in the Wall Street Journal related to the markets. Uh, oil, I know, uh, gold has uh, basically is not a hedge against much of anything at this point. Uh, it's uh, it hasn't risen enough to offset this inflation that we just had. Uh, so the traditional use of gold as an inflation hedge over the last year has not worked. Yeah, I, and this is something I want to add this in there. It, when we say traditional use it's been kind of famous since the i don't know the whole 20th century it was famous for being a hedge against inflation as long as it was fixed there's no evidence throughout history that gold is a long-term hedge against inflation this is weird because people believe it so thoroughly but when you go back through and you look at the numbers on gold, it doesn't, I mean, there are times when it's great against inflation. There's great times when it's great against the dollar and there's times when it's horrible against both. Uh, and that's one of the things that we bring up when we talked about this a couple of years ago when when the crypto market was was flying into the stratosphere and everybody was saying this will be a great hedge against inflation or against fill in the blank. One of the things that you got to figure out if something is going to be a hedge against inflation, what does that mean? Well, it means it needs to go up in value at at least the rate of inflation. And if people aren't buying it solely to keep up with inflation, what, what causes the price of gold to go up? People buying it. Enough people buy it, the price goes up. If a lot of people are selling it and there aren't that many people buying it, the price goes down. So how would it keep as a hedge against inflation? Well, people would be having to sell their dollars to buy gold consistently at the same speed that the dollar increases with inflation. That's weird. Nobody does that. I mean, if, if you think, I mean, we plan on this. This is from, from our uh, portfolio management and investment advice side of things. When we're looking ahead and saying somebody's in income needs to be able to be adjusted with inflation into the future. A lot of the software out there that does that will just say, well, that means each month as inflation goes up, you're going to take that much more out of your portfolio to pay yourself. Except we don't know what inflation is till after the fact. And nobody does that. They might come back after a year or two years and say, whoa, I'm just not able to buy as much as I did. And then they'll say, I think I need about X amount of dollars. It's not exactly inflation. That's just income from a portfolio. Do you think that there's a cabal, other old, uh, older baldy out there, do you think there's a cabal of gold buyers that are just watching the price of the dollar change internally to the United States and going up and precisely buying the right amount of gold to bring the price of gold up to the same speed that the dollar is inflating? Do you, no. No. That's what would have to happen in order to be a real hedge against inflation. You, that's, it's not happening. People don't buy gold to hedge against the dollar as the sole reason to buy gold. When you're buying gold, you're doing it because, hey, I like this stuff. That's collector. There's a collector out there that says, I like gold. It's like buying um, playing cards, uh, sports cards, whatever, Pokemon, uh, <laughs> crypto. Okay, the other people that are buying gold are jewelers, and they say, I can turn this into something more valuable. Well, that's a profitability spectrum. You can buy gold and make a profit if you add value to it, if you do it in a good way and you know your market. Just buying something 
to hold it because you think someone will buy it from you later for a higher price, well, you better know the market really well. That's all I'm saying about that. So buying gold as a hedge against something, it's not a good idea. You can buy gold as a potential sales item to jewelers in the future or to other collectors, but you're in the same boat as the cryptocurrency people at that point. If you're doing it to buy and then add some value to by making electronics, putting it into electric cars, uh, your your uh, audiophile jacks. Uh, there's all kinds of things you can do to add value to gold and consistently make profits. Now, not every con- it's not every constant. You can make profit on gold long term if you're adjusting for the market conditions and so on. But using it as a hedge is just it's a nice myth. There's a lot of nice it's, myths out there. It's nice and emotional. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, most people who buy gold do not actually get the gold. They leave it in the possession of somebody else who charges them to store it. So it has a negative yield. Right. Uh, that's a problem. And those who actually buy gold generally tend to hoard it. I, I think what you're saying is it doesn't yield. That's the negative yield, right? It, so you get well, a no, yield a sign and yield. a don't yield sign. Oh, I got it. Well, it's a negative yield because if you own, for example, uh, if you purchased a interest in a S&P 500 stock index fund, it has dividends and the dividends are not real high, but it has dividends. So you get basically paid to own that. Uh, while gold, you have to pay somebody to store it. Or if you take it in and physical, if you physically accept the gold, you're going to have to store it very carefully someplace. Uh, you might Take it as a coin, in which case it won't need to be assayed when you go to sell it, uh, which will save you some money. But you have to store those coins very, very carefully because if they get rubbed or smeared or smudged or something, they're worthless. Um, people people like gold because it's solid. It's, it's, it is a myth. It is an emotional desire to hold it. Now, in India, for example, that's the big savings account for families. It's yeah. the gold that you occasionally see hanging around the wife's neck. Yeah, and on her fingers and so on. That is their fallback position. And there's uh, there's a good reason for that. They have made their money digital, so you, they have to trust the banks with the money. The vast majority of the money in India is now digital. It's moving faster and faster in that direction. Uh, Modi is pushing that, and it's it's a good way to crack down on the black market in rupees. Um, but if you're wanting to have a savings of some kind that's not in the bank. And there's I, we have clients that prefer to have cash out of the bank as well as in the bank. Because what do you do if the electricity is not working? Well, the bank's not going to be able to give you any money. So what do you do? Well, in India, they buy gold. They put it around their necks. It's a good you know, short term. It's a stopgap. If there's ever a big socioeconomic collapse, gold loses value faster than anything else because everybody's trying to buy stuff with gold at that point. Uh, and that's Everybody's something... Everybody's selling their gold in essence. Right. So they're selling it for goods, but if you don't have power, that's electricity, not not like dictatorial reign. If you don't have power and some... Let, let's put it in the United States. Let's be in the middle of Alabama. Power goes out for a week. It's in the middle of summer. Everybody's going out. You're freezers are no longer functional so everybody's doing barbecues if you show up at a party over the weekend to buy some barbecue with some gold they're not going to have a clue what to do with you 
if you're a friend of theirs, they're not going to want to take the gold for the meat. They're going to be like, well, I don't know what to do with that. That's what happens in big collapses as well. People don't know what to do with the gold. And this is something I studied over the years in depth, going back as far back as history goes. Um, one of the biggest, biggest examples of, of this is during the Roman Empire when Mount Vesuvius blew up and Pompeii fell and Herculaneum went down and um, Pompey the Elder and Pompey the Younger were bringing fleets of people out and one of the fleets sank, the whole fleet. Well, the, all these wealthy people brought all their gold out, the ones that got away, and the, the price of gold in Rome, in the Roman Empire, across the world, didn't recover for 300 years because they flooded the market with precious metals because they were trying to buy houses and food and unfortunately slaves and, and horses and things like that. More recently, it's something that you may you've experienced and recognized. We've had for the last two years the worst inflation we have had in forty years. Yeah, the highest on January first, twenty twenty one, just before the inflation took off, an ounce of gold was one thousand nine hundred dollars. Today, it's one thousand nine hundred sixty dollars, despite the fact the inflation has been running like mad. In other words, if gold is an inflation hedge, just flat didn't work because the nineteen sixty that it's worth today is easily 10% below in its buying power where it was when you purchased it in 2021. And on top of that, you've gone through a bit of a roller coaster in the price of gold during that time period. So if you said, well, I'm just going to go to using gold somehow to buy my stuff, I'll just liquidate my gold throughout this time period to get dollars so that I can buy stuff at the grocery store. Because that's another thing. When you show up at the grocery store with a bunch of gold, they they don't know what to do with you either. It's really hard to do that. And it doesn't really matter what country you're in. This is even incredibly war-torn places where you would think, hey, I can just buy with gold. No, you can't. Uh, gold is not something people know how to check the veracity of. They don't know if it's real. Uh, that makes it really hard to use as a currency. Uh, it also is heavy and hard to carry around, which is why we switched over to paper to begin with. And now we're moving to digital. So it sounds like we're coming down hard on the concept of gold, period. But gold's becoming a pretty nice commodity. The reason why it's kept the value that it has is because it's being used in manufacturing. It is important for electronic use. And in some cases, it's still being used as jewelry. Probably most people's experience with gold falls on the jewelry end, but what they don't realize is there are around a lot more gold in their electronics. All right. All right. Uh, let's talk about the big news this week, the economic news. Yeah, let's do it. Consumer Price Index was published by the Labor Department. And if you ever want to be uh, properly and thoroughly confused, actually go to that report as they... Uh, as they come out with it and uh, see what there is to see. The top line, the 12 months U.S. city average, all items, inflation rate for the last 12 months is 3%. Now, you may say 3%. What does that mean? A year ago, it was running at 9%. The fact that it's down to 3% now means inflation is on the way out the door. As a matter of fact, cutting to the bottom line, if we remove housing, shelter as it's called, from that equation, as the Europeans do. By the way, when the Europeans report their inflation rate, it does not include housing. Uh, in the United States, a big piece, probably the single largest piece of our inflation rate is the attributed rent value, monthly rent value of your house. In other words, if you own a house, you have a mortgage uh, or, or you don't have a mortgage, the 
Labor Department says, here is what you could rent your house for and counts that as about a third of the inflation rate, despite the fact that if you're living in your house, you're probably not renting it out and you're not paying rent on it. That artificial inclusion of houses takes the inflation rate up to 3% right now. But if you remove the housing from it, inflation over the last year, let me find this, make sure I get it right. Uh, all items, are, okay, it was 0.7% over the last 12 months. 0.7% over the last 12 months. Uh, that is an indication that inflation is not that bad. Now, the backside of that is uh, yeah, no. food, the food prices in the last 12 months are up 5.7%. That's not restaurant food. That's going and buying food at the grocery store. Uh, food away from home is up 7.7%. Now, but some parts of food, the ones that people have been waving the flags about and screaming about and literally talking to each other, each other about in the grocery store, eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, eggs and meat have had a major drop in price. And yeah. I, I was, uh, I bought a bunch of chicken legs the other day and I reminded my wife of what I had said a year earlier, that the price of chicken in a year would be abysmally cheap and eggs would be way, way down. They are. Well, what, what is that about? Well, in, at the beginning of uh, 2022, we had an avian flu outbreak, a big one. And it really didn't make much news. It, it, it was China just appeared and was, went away. When that happens, it's not a, oh, do we need to vaccinate the chickens? No, we're not going to develop an expensive vaccine to inject into a chicken and then eat it later. No, we just kill the chickens. All the chickens got killed. The egg layers, the eaters, all of them. They're these huge flocks of chickens. Sounds like I'm quoting Monty Python there. Uh, we're systematically destroyed because they needed to be. We don't want that stuff to spread around to the other chickens. That caused the price of chickens dramatically to go up. The cost of eggs dramatically went up. At the same time, they had a uh, uh, an issue with some diseases in the pork in China, which caused them to have to kill a bunch of pigs. And so the American pig farmers went into overdrive trying to make more pigs. Uh, their fa- factory pro- process is a little confusing. I'm not sure how they manufacture pigs in there, but they make these pigs. I'll explain it to you someday. Okay. And there's something about birds and bees. These right. pigs come out of these birds and the bees. They are manufactured somehow. They show up on the market, but it takes a while to get them through the the quality control process. It like takes a full year or more to get the pigs to the right quality. They just are not manufactured well. When they come out, they're too small, all that stuff. So there's a lag with chickens and there's a lag with pigs. When the price goes up, you can't suddenly make more and have them ready for market. But there's a pretty consistent time frame that you can apply to it And it's really easy to do if you know how to do it and say, hey, pigs are expensive. Chickens are expensive. This time next year, they're going to be really cheap. And they are. So this is part of the reason why we take food and energy out of our inflation numbers, because having avian flu as a one item inflation and trying to apply that across the entire economy gets really absurd. Not that economics isn't absurd. I shouldn't say absurd. Absurdity is what we deal with at all times because economics is about people and people are absurd. So well, the, the, what you were saying, that baseline, if we were measuring inflation the way 
that Europe does. And that's what you were just quoting. We're at the 0.7%. Well, what is the big difference? The big difference is the hypothetical rental price of the house that you own and are not renting. Yeah, that's part of our inflation gauge, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The world out there continues to be interesting, but let's get to John's question. Okay. He wanted to know what is the natural rate. He referred to it. He saw it in the Wall Street Journal and he sent us a picture of that. There's it's really hard to define the natural rate. And even if you look it up and you determine the academic definition of the natural rate and you read it, if you're not an academic economist, you won't understand what they're saying. And that makes sense. But here's the easiest answer that I know of. Ideally, the interest rate, short-term interest rate, the natural rate, would be slightly higher than inflation so that a person who is has a CD at the bank or a uh, money market fund or whatever would earn enough money that makes it after taxes, particularly to make it worthwhile to leave it there. And that's, but the problem with that is Let, let's okay, go and let's, let's go to the big picture first. Cause nobody else that's listening has any clue what we're talking about. Uh, so let's, let's kind of fill in. What is the natural rate? It's an interest rate. Number one, that's theoretical. It's a theoretical interest rate. You know, when the federal reserve raises their rates, that's called the federal funds rate. And that's what they are gifting to uh, banks that put their money on deposit with the Federal Reserve. Um, or they are charging on the other end, the high end, to banks that are taking a loan from the Federal Reserve on that particular day. So that's the difference, kind of a little bit of the spread in there. The natural rate. When the Federal Reserve raises and lowers rates, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to fight inflation, deflation. They're not really trying to hurt the economy or help the economy. They're trying to protect the value of the dollar. And there's this theoretical sense that if you set that federal funds rate at a specific perfect number, it would fight inflation, make sure it doesn't exist or only goes directly to the target they're trying to accomplish and wouldn't hurt the economy. So it's just the right amount. It's just the neutral amount. It doesn't hurt the economy, but it makes inflation go away. When I say it's theoretical, it's very much like the Laffer curve or anything. The Laffer curve is when you raise taxes to 100%, nobody pays taxes. If you put it to 0%, nobody pays taxes. Somewhere in the middle is the perfect number. The natural rate and that Laffer point number move around with the economy and you only know what the economy's done after the fact. This is why it's theoretical. Nobody knows in advance what the economy is going to do, no matter how much they're confident about it and tell you with great uh, 100% accuracy, this is what's going to happen. Nobody knows. Nobody knows the future. So that's the natural rate. Now, now let's jump into how it's calculated because I think we, it, you, were, you were getting into that. Go, go ahead. Well, basically, the natural rate would be a rate that stabilizes the economy. Uh, the problem is we don't know, for example, what inflation is until after the fact. We just got a report in on inflation this week, but it's last month's inflation and measures inflation over the previous 12 months. So trying to set a rate, an interest rate that safe securities will, will pay you. In other words, uh, for example, we mentioned earlier the benchmark, a U.S. 10-year treasury yield. That there's theoretically a natural rate there that would offset inflation and provide you with a little bit of money. Hopefully, it would provide you a little money above inflation and the average tax bill. That is the natural rate. How often do interest rates actually 
be at the natural rate? And the answer is very rarely. They're generally either below or above. And when they transition from high to low or low to high, they pass through the natural rate rather quickly. And why? Because we really don't know what the natural rate should be until usually years after the fact. We just don't have enough data. We measure we measure what's going on in the economy and what's going on everywhere with a lag. Now, if the government were not to intervene, if the Federal Reserve were not to intervene in interest rates or in inflation or anything, it isn't really a good, I don't like the term natural rate. I, I like the term neutral rate better because the fact is interest rates surged up and down because of that lag until the Federal Reserve started, was given the mandate to stabilize interest rates in the, in the value of the dollar. There's a tendency for it to surge up and down over time and to get too high. And then when the natural, when the, the going interest rates get too high, traditionally we've had a recession. And then during the recession, the demand falls off and the interest rates go too low. And then we come out of it like gangbusters and we get some inflation again and we're growing too fast and we go overboard and we go back in the other direction. That is the natural effect. And the larger the economy, and the United States has a really large economy, the more out of whack those natural rates tend to get, which is, among other things, why we had a Great Depression. We actually had a whole series of depressions in the 19th century. And the last really, really big depression in the 1930s, that was when Congress and the Federal Reserve banks got together with the Secretary of the Treasury at some point in there during the recovery from the Depression and said, let's not do that again. Because each one of these cycles is getting bigger. World War II largely occurred because of the Great Depression. The Great Depression occurred because interest rates too, went too high too long. Um, I know that sounds really esoteric and there's a lot more to it. But when interest rates go too high too long, you get a severe recession on the backside. When interest, then interest rates drop to absurd low levels, absurdly low levels, and we come out like gangbusters. The problem with big inter connected societies, the global economy, for example, is where our, our interconnection is almost instantaneous at this point, and the feedback can really drive us into trouble. So the Federal Reserve and economists are always looking at an estimate of what the natural rate ought to be. And the trick is, if you're fighting inflation, which is what the article is about, you need the interest rate to be above the natural rate, above the neutral rate to slow things down. If we see a recession coming or we're in a recession, then interest rates should go below the natural rate to speed things up. But then you run into a situation like we've got right now where everybody is forecasting a recession and interest rates are going up, uh, which is backwards from anything that they teach in economics. And then you have China where interest rates are coming down very quickly. And probably not quickly enough because they're they're suffering deflation. So yeah. it it is really fascinating challenge to even figure out what a natural rate is. Yeah, it, and it, when we say this, you only know what the natural rate is after the fact. It's just as simple as that. Just like you don't really know what the gross domestic product is until much later. That's one of the variables that has to go into figuring yeah. out what the natural rate is. We don't know what the variable is. We can't get the correct result. And that's that's really, it, it'd be really nice if we could get real-time information on the economy everywhere. But we can't. I spent yesterday going over books for a not-for-profit, and it took me five hours to balance the checking book because, or checkbook, not that they write checks very much anymore, because things get out of whack. If one business doesn't know what's going on, and that's pretty common on a day-to-day -day basis, most businesses do not know 
what their end balance is at the end of the month or in the end of last month with outstanding checks and things going on. How do you think somebody who's trying to gauge a bunch of those businesses have to feel? This is why gross domestic product is always an estimate. Even its final estimate is still an estimate. There's no way we can gather all that data. Now, if we have some AI overlord in the distant future that is omnipotent, uh, omnipotent, um, or omni-impotent even, because it's AI, so we could put that in there too, um, that would just know where everybody is all the time, it still not doesn't know what you're planning to do if you haven't put it in the computer. It doesn't know that you're planning on buying a big piece of equipment next month. Uh, this is why we rely on, for a lot of our economic information on opinions of purchasers at big corporations. What do you think you're going to do? Oh, yeah, about that? Okay. Well, that's our kind of estimate, sort of. That's what economists do. It's really just a surveying job. We're just a big call center, and we call people and say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And uh, what else do you have in mind? Yeah, so the natural rate. <laughs> That's, it sure would be nice if we could figure it's, that out, wouldn't it? It would make the Federal Reserve redundant. It's a wonderful theoretical concept, but very rarely comes into actual play, even though the Fed's shooting at it. And we're about out of time for this hour. Yeah. Next hour, we have a whole bunch to talk about. I've got some stuff to talk about imports and exports from and to China. We've got, I only have a half a bunch. Well, I have a whole bunch together. Right, I only have half. If we yeah. combine that hole in that half, we'll have another hole. A hole and a half. Hold it half. If we combine them, they'd be a whole. Yes. Okay. So uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, I know we're busily scaring people away just by our conversation. Do you hear us talking about a hole and a half coming combined and still being a Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you would like to talk to us about uh, your portfolio and managing it or giving advice on it, a second opinion or whatever, we manage money for uh, people of relatively high net worth, trusts, foundations, things like that. And we give fiduciary investment advice on that. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us about that locally and you have a phone. Um, it's 254-947-1111. And if you have a phone that's connected to the wall with a, one of those weird string looking things that has wires inside it, uh, toll free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can sign up for our email uh, newsletter. You can uh, contact us through the contact form, or you can email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com.